The National Nuclear Security Administration has a difficult mission. It must constantly assess the condition of the nation's nuclear warheads, and explosive testing has been banned under international treaties for decades. Now the NNSA is spending billions on new instruments deep underground. The Government Accountability Office has found NNSA needs to tighten up its program management. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Natural Resources and Environment, Allison Bodden. Ms. Bodden, good to have you back. Thank you so much, Tom. This is a really interesting project because they are putting in very complex, large size physically instrumentation a thousand feet down underground. Just tell us what the project is all about, first of all. Well, NNSA is building two new instruments. One is named Scorpius and the other is named Zeus. And they are designed to measure sort of new aspects of plutonium when it is compressed by high explosives. So it sort of mimics what happens in a nuclear weapon, but it doesn't provide substantial and you know, any yield to exceed those treaty limits that you were discussing. And these are brand new instruments, leading edge science, and as you said, very complicated in and of themselves, but also will be placed well underground. And what is the facility that they are in? It's a tunnel facility called the U1A complex out at the Nevada National Security Site. It's a bit north of Las Vegas. Uh, It used to be known as the Nevada Test Site. It's essentially a mine. And there is experimentation that goes on there with high explosives and nuclear material, but in a very safe and contained environment. Right. So are the warheads individually brought there from time to time to be looked at by these instruments? Or how does the program operate? Because the warheads are scattered all over the place. Sure. So the warheads themselves are not brought there, but rather a device, a test device, very, very small scale and generally uses plutonium, may also use surrogate materials and high explosives. But these experiments are done in controlled and scaled ways that don't allow them to go what's called critical and they don't create nuclear yield. And therefore, they're called subcritical experiments. All right. And then the NNSA has a special subcritical experiments, enhanced capabilities, I said that backwards, the ECSE program specifically to deploy these instruments then, correct? That's correct. And one of them, it's an x-ray type of machine? Yes, it basically is a very high-powered x-ray. It can see very, very dense materials. And what's special and new about this particular machine is that it can take as many as four pictures. So it kind of creates like a stop-motion film whereas prior instruments have only been able to take one image. And give us a sense of the scale of dollars involved here. These are not $100 things or $1,000 things that would go into a dentist's office. They are not. Altogether, the program is expected to cost about $2.5 to $2.6 billion. And the schedule expectations are for the machines to be finished by about 2030. And the review of this program of the enhanced capabilities for subcritical experiments, this was mandated in the National Defense Authorization Act, I think, last year, correct? That's right. That's right. And, you know, Congress will take an interest in anything that has that high a price tag. All right. And so what were you looking at here? Really, we were looking at the justification for the program and how well these various projects to build these pieces of equipment and to install them underground, how well those efforts are being managed. The one machine, actually the larger one, Scorpius, is on track. 
It's being managed under a fairly rigorous management approach. It's been using independent cost estimates, independent technology readiness assessments, all those good best practices that we love at GAO. The Zeus machine had been managed under a less rigorous regime, um, really one that's more used for R&D approaches. And that instrument has faced some challenges, particularly around integrating the build of the device with the infrastructure needed underground at that tunnel complex. And long story short, when they determined the device's final size, they realized that the tunnel bore that they had would not be wide enough for the machine. So it's almost the opposite of building a boat in the basement that you can't get out. They built the machine outside they can't get in. That's right. We're speaking with Allison Bodden. She is Director of Natural Resources and Environment at the Government Accountability Office. And I guess my question is why we're not both instruments, since they are codependent to actually carry out the subcritical experiments managed under a single program management. The department deals with managing these projects as individual efforts, and they are not generally integrated. And that's been one of the things that we've been recommending for a little while, is that when you have programmatic efforts, multiple projects that are all required to be coordinated to achieve a common objective, that there should be a more integrated planning approach. And I think this Zeus and Scorpius effort is sort of an example of what happens when that integrated approach isn't implemented. And who does the build here? I mean, how does this get done in terms of contracting and acquisition and all that part of it? So the management and operating contractors who run the various scientific, technical, and engineering sites around the country that are part of the nuclear security enterprise are collaborating on these pieces of equipment. So Los Alamos National Laboratory, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, Sandia, they are all collaborating on these. And the contractors at the Nevada National Security Site are responsible for the infrastructure in that mine complex where the equipment will be installed. All right. And so what were your recommendations here? You said one of them is behind schedule, plus I imagine it's costly. Talking about a shaft that's a thousand feet down into the ground, that's got to be expensive to widen that. Yes. And in fact, they need to bore a new hole for it rather than widen it. And so what we suggested was that NNSA apply that more rigorous management approach to the Zeus project and ensure that effective risk management structures are in place and effective integration between that infrastructure side of the project and the actual building of the instrument. And are these instruments like the size of a refrigerator, the size of a minivan? Give us a sense of what we're dealing with. Uh, the size of a football field. <laughs> They're very, very large. And this mining complex, this mine underground, uh, has several mine shafts with pieces of equipment in it that are really quite large. These are not things that you could fit in your house. So it sounds like, though, given an instrument that big, they would take it down piece by piece and assemble it down there? That's correct. It is built in cells and there's some testing of the equipment above ground to make sure, you know, that they're not going to bring lots of things underground that then don't work. Um, So there's sort of a test bed above ground that's being built in Nevada. But yes, it comes down in pieces and is assembled within the hole. And by the way, did the GAO, did you get down that shaft and just see what's down there? I did. I did. It is a very long, dark elevator ride, but it is a fascinating facility. And once you're down there, you really wouldn't know that you're underground. It's big under there. It's like the Loray Caverns, only scientific. 
It is very big. It's very well lit. And um, there is a tremendous amount of ventilation. Wow. Do people come and go daily? I mean, they don't live down there for weeks on end or anything. It is a work site, um, just like any other scientific facility. And so above ground, there are restrooms and parking and all that kind of thing. Wow. So uh, is there like a Starbucks down there or do you have to go back up to get coffee? There are refrigerators. I'm sure people bring their lunches, but there is no Starbucks in sight. All right. So the NNSA generally agreed with your recommendations to apply these new management techniques or program management techniques, not new, but the tried and true ones to Zeus is the one that's off course. Yes, they did concur with our recommendation and let us know that they intend to have that more rigorous management approach in place by September 2025. And ultimately, uh, you said Congress is looking at the justification for the project. They're still behind it. It sounds like it's too late to not do it. And sounds like as the bombs themselves age, this type of analysis is going to be needed more and more. Yes, Congress is certainly behind the project. Um, it's been, you know, supported over the years in terms of appropriations. I think, you know, one of the interesting things for Congress has been the schedule for completing these instruments and ensuring that they are ready to produce data on time for the programs that need that data. So really the schedule concern is around completing the instruments so that they can begin the experimentation that will support the overall needs for maintaining the stockpile. Allison Bodden is Director of Natural Resources and Environment at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Jane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 
25 years I had compartmentalized a part of me and I had hidden things and I had not been my full self at work and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own. Uh, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you you assume this mantle of being a role model for I don't know if it's your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you you just gained extra attention in that. But that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, while it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back, those are base skills that I learned way back in high school. 
and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence, because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles. I think so, because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can. And the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in <laughs> or you know something, something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you've, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision it's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point. 
if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this that you just mentioned. You're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces and in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who... I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.